Welcome back to the Warts and All podcast. It's all about digging about in the history of the human body, gory stories, gruesome facts, a bit of anatomy and a lot of fun. I'm Susie Edge, medical doctor and historian, and I just love finding out how we've treated the human body throughout history, in life and in death. But let's face it, mostly in death. Today is November the 4th, 2022. I didn't make a podcast last week because I had a rather last minute trip to London. I went to see a screening of a new Sky History show, which I'll talk about in next week's podcast. I've decided to get a lapel mic and start recording out and about so that we don't miss opportunities like that in the future. We learn and grow, don't we? For now, though, I'm still somewhat inspired by my last trip to London, when I found myself all alone somewhere I have wanted to visit for a very long time, and that was the old operating theatre. So I thought we might take a look inside, have a think about what went on there. A wee warning though, I will be talking about operations, painful diseases, trauma and also breast cancer. So if you would rather not hear about those things today, that's not a problem. I'll catch you again another time. On to mail this week. I had a really lovely message from Fiona Mary who said how much she was enjoying the book Mortal Monarchs and it reads just like my TikToks. It was surprisingly tricky to try and bring my TikTok voice into the writing. I didn't think I'd achieved that. And so I was so relieved to hear when people said they thought that was the case. So thank you so much for that. I've had quite a few requests to join others as a guest to chat on their podcast recently. And I'm always really happy to do that. Honestly, I love doing it. There were a couple that fell through when I wasn't well earlier this year. And I'm quite sad about that. I'll have to look into the new year now, though, because my diary is pretty full up. If you want me to come and have a chat about the deaths of kings and queens and my book Mortal Monarchs, then please do give me a shout. A word on this podcast and sponsorship before we go on. I don't have a sponsor for this podcast, but if you would like to support my endeavours, then please grab a copy of my book Mortal Monarchs. It's available from the usual bookshops in the UK, and I'm still waiting for news of its arrival in hardcover in the US. Sadly, that's out of my hands, but believe me, when it comes, I will shout about it from the rooftops. In the meantime, the audio version is doing really well. I can't tell you how much fun I had recording that. When we were done, I wanted to do it again. Let me have another go. But we had finished and we had to get it out there. So it's available on Amazon in audio. That's all Amazons, not just in the UK. For now, though, let's climb the spiral staircase back in time into the old operating theatre. After pushing through the crowds at Borough Market with their wonderfully inviting pork pies, stacks of yummy-looking chocolates and, yes, fish and chips with a remarkable curry sauce, I came out into the sunshine looking for what I really came to this part of London for. I crossed the road with a hundred others milling about the place. It was really busy. I stopped on St Thomas's Street, surrounded by people. I looked up at the skyline to take in the striking modernity of the Shard building. And then I stepped off the street and away from the crowds into an old church. This wasn't just an old empty church, though, and I wasn't looking to pray. There, I stepped back in time. Up a narrow, tricky wooden spiral staircase, I entered into the Herb Garret and then into the old operating theatre. The theatre is a relic of the early 19th century. There, a semicircle of stalls look down onto a central point where a wooden operating table stands, with sawdust below and a feeling of dread in the air. In this operating theatre, or OR as you might call it now, outside the UK, there were no beeping machines, no sterile instruments laid out, 
No special theatre lights above. No anaesthetists dressed in surgical gowns or nurses readying for surgery. There was no surgeon busy scrubbing their hands or donning gloves. There's just a wooden table. Here, patients would be brought from the wards, beyond these foreboding double doors, and they would be set upon the wooden operating table in its commanding spot in the middle of the floor. Students and surgeons would look down on people at their wits' end, probably, in a predicament so bad that the only options were to go under the knife and risk death early, or live with the condition that could slowly kill them. This was an operating theatre built for women, because the women's wards were beyond those doors in St Thomas's Hospital. Here, operations from boil lancing to tumour removal and amputations would happen. It's also likely to have been used as a place to carry out dissections, anatomy demonstrations for students who may or may not have been party to acquiring the dead bodies from nearby cemeteries. I really would not want to be given the job of lumbering a rotting old recently exhumed corpse up those steps. I hope they paid the body snatchers really well for that. The early 19th century was a time when surgeons were dissecting criminals from the gallows and any dead body they could get their bodily fluid-covered hands on. They would learn to improve their skills on the dead and for practice on the living, they would practice on animals, vivisection, to further their skills. It was a time when anaesthesia was a touch of wine or opium and a leather strap to bite down on. When germ theory was not yet considered, but the four bodily humours and the stench of miasma still ruled as a way to understand and treat illness. In the old operating theatre, which is a museum of not just the theatre itself, but the herb garret, where the apothecary would have worked, there are posters and books that describe the operations that would have taken place here. Graphic illustrations show how one might remove a stone in a urinary bladder. I once mentioned the urinary bladder on a TikTok video, and someone came into the comments scoffing, Well, what other bladder do you have? <laughs> Well, that would be the gallbladder, and whilst we are talking about lithiasis or the formation of stones, I think it's pretty important to differentiate. Bladder stones were a popular thing to have, particularly in the days of Samuel Pepys, and the surgeons then did develop a rather horrific way to remove them, considering the patient would be awake. It sounds quite horrid, but when it worked, it worked well. And Samuel Pepys was so grateful for the relief that he got from a bladder stone operation that he kept his in a box and celebrated the very day each year when he became stone and pain-free. Samuel Pepys was sat in a chair, legs stretched wide apart, and in went the surgeon. At first, a long device was entered into the bladder up through the penis, and there they would move it around until they located the bladder stone, and then it would be held against the wall of the bladder. Then a cut was made in the perineum, through the skin and up through the bladder, so that the stone could be pulled out. It was another risky operation, not just in terms of maybe dying from infection, but also the possibility of incontinence. But for Pepys, it worked wonders, and we're glad it did so, for we... We got to read his his account of life in 1600s London, of great fires, of plagues, and of kissing the corpse of a long-dead queen. In this old operating theatre, such operations were still taking place 200 years later, in a similar manner. One account we have is from April 1824, when a woman called Elizabeth Reagan fractured her tibia and fibula the bones of the lower leg. Her leg was crushed when it was hit by a carriage, and she was brought to St Thomas's Hospital. 
It was a compound fracture, meaning that the broken bones had split the skin and were sticking out. After a few days of waiting and watching, it was eventually decided that her limb was going to need surgical attention. She was eventually taken to the theatre for an operation. Firstly, a tourniquet was applied above the injury to reduce the flow of blood. An assistant held her leg firmly. A point was chosen about three inches above her knee and a knife would be used at first to cut through the skin all around the limb. Once the skin and the muscle were cut through, a piece of cloth would be put around the muscles. This was then used to pull back the muscle away from the bone and further up the leg. The bone would then be sticking out at the bottom. This was to provide a flap of muscle and skin to be put back after the bone was cut. There's no point in just a guillotine-type action of cutting straight through the limb. One would be left looking back at a... Well, I mean, it, it would look like a stake on the bone, wouldn't it? And it wouldn't heal well at all. So the muscles and skin out of the way, a saw was then used to break the bone underneath. Back and forth, the teeth of the saw would cut into the bone, remembering that bone is living tissue with its own blood vessels. It's not just like sawing through dead wood. Once the bone was snapped away, the lower limb could be removed for inspection later, and the muscles and skin above the amputation could be brought back down over the wound. Before that, though, hooks would be used to grab at the vessels that would have been severed, and these were then tied off with ligatures. The wound closed over and bandages applied. The whole thing took about 20 minutes, and Elizabeth was returned to her bed on the ward. And she was given brandy and some wine. Her operation was written about in The Lancet, a medical journal that survives to tell the tale today, though sadly Elizabeth did not survive. She died only a few days later. A personal account of an operation of this period from a patient's point of view survives in the writing of the novelist Francis Burney. Burney, who wrote Evelina, amongst other novels and plays, also kept a journal, and nine months after her ordeal of going under the knife in 1812, she wrote an account of it to her sister. Francis Burney, who was English but was living in France, felt a pain in her breast. The French surgeons, who had been perfecting breast cancer a bit sooner than their English counterparts at the time, decided that she would need surgery. It wouldn't have been a light decision to make. The risks were high. This was not a simple little tumour removal. This was a mastectomy involving the pectoral muscles underneath breast tissue and lymph nodes up into the axilla. When family wrote the account to her sister, she didn't hold back. She told of how the pain she had encountered in her breast was worsening, she could no longer raise her arm in the air because the pain was so severe. That's strange you might think that breast pain would prevent one lifting an arm up, but under the skin, and not only the breast tissue but the fascia and the muscles of the chest, they attach to the arms and contract and relax in order to move the arms towards and away from the body. Coupled with that, vessels that run from the heart and out to the limbs go through the chest, along with the lymph system, and of course the bones could well be involved too, with an advanced breast cancer. Something needed to be done. This operation, though, was not carried out in an operating theatre under the gaze of eager medical students, but this time just a select few medical men and one nurse at her home in Paris. Either Francis Burney's home, not the nurse. That sounded like it was at the nurse's home. Yeah. OK. A bed was placed in the middle of the room and old sheets were used to prevent dirtying of precious new linen. Body fluids do tend to make a mess when you cut into a body. Fanny's account of her ordeal is fascinating. 
It can be seen in the British Library and read there in full. There's a wonderful reading of the letter by Tolu Agbalusi, which you can see on YouTube. Fanny describes seeing the glitter of polished steel and how she screamed below the knife. You would, wouldn't you? But incredibly, she did not fight or shift about, but remained still and let it happen. She refused to be held. She knew that if she did not, that danger hovered about her and that this experiment, as she called it, could save her from that danger. A handkerchief had been placed over her face, but she could still see through it. She closed her eyes. When the wound was made and the instrument was withdrawn, the pain seemed undiminished, for the air that suddenly rushed into those delicate parts felt like a mass of minute but sharp and forked poniards that were tearing the edges of the wound. She described how she could feel the surgeon's knife snagging, the skin putting up such a fight that he had to adjust his hold from right hand to left and back again. She described the feeling of the knife scraping against the breastbone. I find it remarkable that Francis Burney survived this surgery. The trauma itself of having the tissue cut away as she lay awake in bed, but also the aftermath, the risk of infection, and the pain of the inflammation in the days after the operation. There were, of course, many such operations like this, and of course not all successful. With mastectomies and tumour removals, the first breast reconstruction was carried out as early as 1895 by a German surgeon in Heidelberg called Vincent Cerny. He had removed a tumour from a patient's left breast and replaced it with a fatty lump he had removed from her flank. He put it under the skin of the chest. And she was a 41-year-old singer, apparently, but I can't find her name. It was a remarkable thing to use the fatty tissue from the patient's own body but it didn't last. He went on to shove all sorts of stuff into women's chests, from injections of paraffin to glass balls and wool and other materials. In no account have I read the names of any of the women involved. When anaesthesia came along, it did not completely change the outcomes of surgery, as one might expect. Instead, operations took longer, as surgeons were able to take their time and dig about inside the wounds, go deeper, further into the body and carry out more incredible surgical undertakings. Sadly, that only meant more opportunity for infection to take hold. And it wasn't until antiseptic joined anaesthesia as another tool in the operating theatre arsenal did surgery change dramatically and more lives could be saved. The development of anaesthesia and antiseptic techniques will have to be a subject for another day and another podcast, but I look forward to that one. I would highly recommend stepping off the modern streets of London into the old operating theatre. I was really lucky to be in there on my own. Other people came later on and actually I um, I did help out a guy who was there being asked lots of questions by his young son and I was able to give him a few answers when he was looking a little bit lost. In the Herb Garrett next to the operating theatre there are displays and there's some wonderful stuff to see. There are anatomical specimens, lots of different types, including a whole skeleton. I would like to tell you who who that belonged to, but I don't remember, and I didn't take a photograph, so maybe if you go there yourself you can let me know who that was. I remember it being a woman, and I remember clearly the, the skeleton having marks on the, the pelvis where it had been um, stamped, if you like, that this what it was and who it belonged to. 
In there as well, you can see illustrations of how leeches worked and there's bloodletting equipment, all sorts of herbs and spices and, and different notices to tell you what they were used for and where they came from. There's an obstetrics and gynaecology part of it with, with some, frankly, terrifying instruments that were used at the time. And I really enjoyed all of that, having a good look round and having a good rummage. There's some things that you can touch and feel and, and get more of a immersive idea about. And then you walk up into the operating theatre itself and, and you can, oh, you can imagine what it would have been like. In the theatre itself, I believe there are demonstrations where you can go and see talks about operations. Thank you for listening to the Watson All podcast. For further reading of 18th and 19th century operations and surgical training, I would highly recommend the book Digging Up the Dead by Drew and Birch. Around this time last year, I read this book by candlelight after a storm took out our electricity and communications. I sat by our open fire, lit some candles and snuggled under a blanket. There's nothing like getting into the spirit of it. It was so atmospheric. One thing I noticed about the whole experience was how focusing it all was. There were no distractions beyond our little part of the world at that moment. Candlelight only goes so far. And I was transfixed in that bubble. I had for a moment just a slight inkling of what it would have been like in such times. In these times of rising energy costs and the cost of living crisis, it's almost worth turning off the lights, turning off my phone and focusing on a good historical novel by candlelight. It's easier said than done, I suppose. I doubt the rest of the family would allow it. If the electricity still flows and the phone is switched on, you can find me on TikTok at Susie Edge, on Twitter at Susie Edge on Instagram at suze.edge, and where else? I have Be Real working now, which is a bit of fun. Uh, it hasn't beeped at me today, just waiting for that to happen. I've also launched a new podcast, a bit of a, a soft launch, if you like, because I haven't really shouted about it. It's going to be taking a look behind the scenes of trying to make it as a writer and content creator, having left my job as a hospital doctor in the NHS. It's called How to Lack Commitment, and if you're interested in a backstory... You can find me there too. For now, thanks for listening and I'll see you again soon.